Please join with me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. It is always fun to hear the lessons children have learned from us. We continue our worship today with a reading from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Jesus Christ who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Even as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of God for the people of God. I have to confess, I love a good courtroom drama. Whether it's uh, recent, uh, whether it's uh, older black and white films, whether it's uh, classics that have been taken from a book into a movie, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, um, you know, the ability for a movie to tell a story only from the deliber deliberation room of the jury, 12 Angry Men, uh, or um, to create a picture of a moment in culture and in history from To Kill a Mockingbird. Or even that great dra dramatic moment in a cross-examination where someone's true colors come out. Say like, in a few good men, you can't handle the truth. These courtroom dramas are powerful opportunities to see the dynamics of humanity, the culture that we live in. Uh, it's interesting to find those moments when uh, the judge spots a technicality in the ruling and what once was terrifying now becomes liberating. Or a witness at the very last minute begins to remember with clarity what happened in the moment of the crime and the defendant and the plaintiff and who you thought was right and who you thought was wrong completely goes upside down. Uh, courtroom opportunities are wonderful. Courtroom dramas are powerful. Um, I have found that in reading uh, um, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, that the first seven chapters 
are much like a courtroom drama. There's discussion about the law. There's discussion about the judge. There is discussion about meeting the expectations of the law. But there's also that discussion of the gospel, about the love that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 8 is really that place where uh, there begins to be a triumphal moment. Uh, all throughout the first seven chapters, uh, love is only talked about twice, but in the midst of this chapter, chapter 8, it is mentioned almost in every moment of the chapter. I, I found in pastoral care uh, that if I want to know a lot about someone, if I want to quickly get an idea about where they are in terms of their faith life or their relationship with God, I ask them, paint me a picture with words of your image of God. Just take a moment and think about that. What does God look like? I know much of our tradition says don't paint a picture of God, that God is the king of creation, that God is the holy other, that God is different and separate and good, and that God has made everything. But take a moment. What does God look like? To you? What is your image of God? At times I've found uh, parishioners who have thought that God is like the uh, wise old gentleman sitting in a rocking chair on the side of a country road underneath the cool of the porch in the heat of the day. Uh, a person who's been there forever, who as you approach him and begin to ask him a question, maybe if your question is too long, the old man falls asleep, but then wakes up and asks you to start again. Is that the image that you have of God, of, of someone who is amazingly available, very relational, truly righteous, but a little bit out of work, out of uh, job, out of effectiveness, not really in the center of what all's happening. Maybe your image of God is more like uh, the high-powered investment banker uh, that walks uh, through the streets of Manhattan, who wields power with the stroke of a pen, who has more things and more advantages and more entitlements than anyone else. And as you walk along the street, you try to get his attention. But he has more important things to do than to answer your question. What is your image of God? What does God look like to you? Uh, studies say that the image that we have of God is correlated very well with the kind of parenting that we received as children. That there's something about that power of parents that translates well to our understanding of an image of God. I found that some parishioners, uh, maybe not here, maybe in other places, um, have thought about God as the cosmic vending machine. That all the blessings that you're looking for are in there, very orderly placed, uh, rows uh, one, two, three, and four, columns A, B, and C, whatever you'd like, punch the number in, put your coins, and out comes the blessing. But be sure that the coins that you put in are the right prayers and the right actions and the right items because the vending machine is very specific. Hold your mouth just right, pronounce your biblical words just right, and maybe 
the vending machine will share a blessing with you. Um, this sermon series has developed along the lines of what are the tough questions that are hard to answer, right? Last week we talked about, um, do we, um, are we literalists as Wesleyan Christians? Do we believe everything in the Bible? We, we, we do, um, but we talked about how um, uh, believing in everything in the Bible and living out everything in the Bible, we want to be careful not to become an anachronistic idea of the biblical person with the long beard, the staff, the robe. I, I have never been so happy to compete with rain <laughs> in my whole life. Probably if I was smart, I'd quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Today we talk about um, grace and sin, particularly within that question, is there an unforgivable sin? I'm sure you've heard it around the water cooler or read about it on the internet. There is that place in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus says, I tell you that, there, that all sins are forgiven for men, every sin except one, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Have you ever wondered what does that mean? To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, uh, to, um, to recognize that there is something that we can do that can undo all that God has done for us. We read in Romans chapter eight, very clearly, uh, verses 31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That he loves us so much that he didn't spare his only son. It's easy for us to think that when we go into the courtroom that God is looking for a technicality just to revoke our salvation and send us back to where we came from. But the reality here in Romans, that even when we go into the courtroom, that the judge is not a stranger. The judge is the king of all creation. And that it's not even that we've been given some um, uh, court-appointed attorney to argue our case, but it's the very Son of God who has sacrificed for us, who speaks for us and pleads our case. That to imagine that a God who has given his only Son, adopted us into the family, empowered us for good works, would then be ambiguous about a particular sin that would put us in utter jeopardy seems to be a strange thing for a God who is filled with so much love. So much love that not the height, nor death, uh, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, or future things, not powers, not anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ, uh, the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Except for that little ambiguous, unclear thing that you better be careful not to run into, because if you do, it all goes away. It, it just seems like it's rough logic. Now, it is true that Scripture talks about this grieving the Holy Spirit uh, in another place. Uh, uh, we find it in uh, Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, uh, the writer says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. 
So there are things that we should do and not do. There's very clearly, if you have been adopted by the king of all, if you've been made a prince, if you've been equipped and empowered for good things, it's great. You were rescued by grace. Uh, I think Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. There's nothing that we can do to pay the ransom. Christ pays it for us. But having been adopted into the family, we are invited to obey the house rules and to take up our cross and to do our chores with others. That when we recognize that there is an expectation of living in the house of God, it makes sense that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. This unforgivable sin language. Uh, Some scholars would say uh, that looking at what goes before and after that Matthew chapter 13 passage, that it might give us a clue. You see, the teachers of the law and the chief priests and Pharisees had just watched Jesus do a miracle. And in the midst of trying to figure out what to do with this guy who does miracles, amen, sister. In the midst of uh, trying to figure out what to do with this man who says he's God and does miracles, they decide to attribute his good work to Beelzebub. And then you get the passage that Jesus says. It's almost as if you worry about blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, then you haven't really figured out who Jesus is. That maybe that ambiguous place is attributing the good works of God to the works of the devil. That might be a place to make sense. You see, uh, in a Wesleyan view of Christianity, uh, we believe that God's grace is all-consuming, that is all-powerful. We even divide that little word grace up into three segments. We, we talk about provenient grace. That's the grace that goes before, the grace that, um, that is looking for you before you even knew God was out there. I remember as a five and six-year-old boy uh, sitting in the pews with my grandmother in Jasper, Alabama at the Methodist Church. I couldn't understand what the preacher was saying all the way in the front, but my grandmother had a charm bracelet. And each of the members of her family, she had put a charm for their birthday. She had put a charm for each one of the marriages. She had put a charm for our confirmation and for our baptism. She had even marked the death of her parents and grandparents by a charm. For me, a a kinesthetic learner, I could flip through those charms and on them there were dates and names of the people who loved me before I even knew who they were. And scripture that reminded me what my family was about. Provenient grace, the grace that goes before, before you even knew that God loved you, God was looking out for you. Now we believe also in that second kind of grace called justifying grace. This is the grace of just as I am. This is the grace of the altar call. This is the grace of um, um, moving um, yourself off the throne of your heart and allowing God to sit there. This is the grace of the four spiritual laws, the sinner's prayer, you name it. This is that grace. It's easy to remember what it's about. It is the grace that makes us clean, that washes away our sin and makes us white as snow. You can say it this way, justifying grace is the grace that makes it as just as if I had not sinned. 
It is that grace that we often talk about in terms of conversion. It's the recognition that what God is able to do for us is more than we can able to do for ourselves. But grace doesn't end there. Uh, uh, coming to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not fire insurance for end times. It's not just a matter of repeating a set of words uh, that therefore secure your spot for a reserved seat in the VIP section of the pearly gates. But there is work to do. Once you become part of God's family, uh, there is peace to, to spread. There is news to announce of the coming kingdom. There is that ambassadorship of bringing with you the kingdom of God so that all might know and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's grace isn't done with us. God's graces uh, continue to work with us to uh, mold us and shape us ever more resembling his son, Jesus. Uh, it, it is the way in which um, we become sanctified and perfected. Now, John Wesley often got the question, could you be perfected on this side of the grave? And John Wesley would say, yes, it's possible. All things are possible for God. But if someone comes to you and says they've been perfected on this side of the grave, chances are they are clueless as to what it means. That was a joke. The, the rain really kind of messed that joke up because y'all were ready, right? <laughs> Recognizing that God is in the business of saving and redeeming, it seems strange that we would think that there is some tiny technicality against the preponderance of data about God's love and how God is for us and how nothing can separate us from the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus our Lord, except for that tiny little bit. You better be careful not to step in it. If Jesus has paid the debt for us, why do we think that there's some last closing cost, final fee, something that's going to take it away? I believe uh, living in a place of grace uh, can be... Um, can resemble very clearly uh, a story that I like to tell about a little boy. A little boy lived out in um, uh, rural. He was living on a farm. Mom and dad worked. Uh, they had a, a pond and a creek that ran off the property. Um, and a little boy was bored in the midst of summer, and so he went out to dad's wood shop and said, Dad, can I have a dowel and can I have a piece of wood? And he worked that piece of wood into what looked like the hull of a boat little tiny thing, and he drilled with the hand drill and put the dowel in. He went to his mother's sewing room and he said, Mom, can I have some of your fabric? I'd like to make a sail for my boat. And she gave him scraps and he uh, sewed them together and made a beautiful boat, uh, as crude as it was, uh, with a sail. He went out to the pond and he would put the boat into the pond and push it and the wind would kick up and it would move through the pond and come back to him and he'd pick it up. And he'd put it back in and the wind would kick up and it would float and sail through the pond and come right back to him and he'd pick it up. Well, he realized that uh, there was a better direction on the wind and so he walked to the other side, opposite from where the creek drained out of the pond and he put in the boat and the wind kicked up and it went faster than he had ever seen it go. But it didn't circle back around. It headed straight for that creek. And when it hit the creek, it began to run through the creek. He ran around the pond, and he went to the creek, and he blindly ran after his boat. But the boat went faster than he did, and the end of their property came quickly. And he watched as it headed down away from him. 
The next week, summer was over and he was walking to town, going to school. As he walked through town, he walked by the pawn shop and there in the window of the pawn shop was his boat with a price tag on it. He walked inside to the pawn shop. He said, that is my boat. I put my initials underneath it. I made it with my own two hands. That's mine. You should give it to me. And the pawn shop owner said, there's a price tag. You pay the price. You get your boat. So over the next week, he did every chore possible. He worked hard to uh, collect all the eggs. He uh, worked hard to make sure that the horses were rubbed down. He made sure that he vacuumed what had to be vacuumed, that he cleaned what had to be cleaned, and he collected those coins. And he walked back to that pawn shop with all of the change in his T-shirt. And as he got there, he threw down, respectfully, all of the change. It rolled and bounced and went off the edges. And the pawn shop owner, feeling compassion, began to count with the young man all of the change. It took him 10 minutes to put all the change in nice rows, and he showed the young boy how he had assembled enough to buy the boat. As the young man walked out with his boat, he cradled it in his arms, and he said quietly, if you could have been near him, you would have heard it, He said quietly to his boat, little boat, little boat, you are twice mine. I made you with my own two hands, and I lost you. I searched for you and found you, and I paid a price for you. So little boat, you are twice mine and twice loved. When we begin worrying and wondering, that a technicality is going to steal our joy. When we begin worrying that God is creating more extra rules for us, when we begin wondering how effective and how lasting God's grace is, we should remember the little boy with the boat and know that the one who created us lost us, searched for us, and found us. And we are not just once his, we are twice his. Oftentimes we want to argue about who believes in God and who doesn't. Maybe we we should come to the realization that God's been believing in us far longer than we ever knew. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'll stay right where you are, um, there is, uh, for the last nine weeks, we've been inviting people to share with us videos about where they are and how they've stayed connected. And apparently there was a large concentration of Chapelwood folks in Steamboat Springs. We do have a backload, a backlog of uh, uh, videos, so we'll continue to share those with you. We'd love for you to send us more if you're out and about doing what you're doing. Um, uh, please remember the Chapelwood United Methodist Church's uh, mission is to help ourselves and others take their next step in their faith journey with Christ. We don't expect uh, that we eat the whole elephant of the gospel at once, but rather just take that step today. Maybe that step has to do with uh, recognizing that God is for you and not against you, or maybe it's time to sign up for a small group or an opportunity to serve others. Um, I wonder if for some of you, your next step is to join this congregation. We'd love to have you. Um, You can come down uh, to join the congregation during the final verse of Blessed Assurance on page 369, and Aubrey's going to lead us in that. 
want to point out to you Diane Hill here in the white sweater. She's one of our Stephen ministers. She is prepared to pray with you right now if you'd like someone to pray with you uh, or to arrange care for you or for someone else through Stephen ministry. Remember that the brown door on the back, uh, on the back of the sanctuary on this side is our prayer chapel. Uh, please utilize it today or any day um, in your prayer walk. Um, and why don't you uh, grab a hand next to you for our closing benediction and let's pray. Almighty God, we give thanks that you have been for us for longer than we've known. Send us out into the world, empowered by your grace, motivated by your spirit, to share with others about the good gifts that you've given us and the gospel message, which makes us clean as snow, so that we might be your representatives to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.